1: The hardest thing in the world is when the defense is giving their clothes an argument, and I just have to sit there. You want to get up and
2: you want to scream.
3: Where were you and where was Morris
1: Black from the gun at all?
2: Crying on the floor of the kitchen.
1: Are you aware that your wife? was already making plans to go through the match.
2: I think you were planning on not going through the match. Rank order,
1: number one, Mr. Durst, Lenox Hill Hospital.
3: I fell out on the street, on my knees, and he's guffawing. It's the funniest thing he's ever seen in his entire life.
1: As you sit here right now, I'm gonna ask you, did you kill Susan Berman?
2: No.
1: But if you had, you would lie about it, correct?
2: Correct.
1: Nothing further. Welcome to Jury Duty,
4: the trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder.
5: On Friday, September 17th, a Los Angeles jury found Robert Durst guilty of murder with special circumstances of lying in wait and killing a witness. Durst's sentencing is scheduled for Thursday, October 14th. We will cover those proceedings at that time.
4: Since Durst's conviction, there have been a swirl of rumors related to the possibility of Durst's indictment in New York for the murder of his wife, Kathy. Over the next few weeks, we will follow up on these and other Durst-related stories as they develop. We
5: also hope to bring you interviews with key witnesses and jurors. But first, we'd like to take the next couple of episodes to reflect on the most significant and memorable moments of this extraordinary trial.
4: To do that, we're joined by reporter Charlie Bagley, who's been covering the trial for CrimeStory.com as well as for The New York Times, and was in the courtroom for virtually all of the proceedings. Charlie, welcome to our first post-verdict
6: episode. Glad to be here, finally.
4: Yeah, finally. What an extraordinary journey. So this is how we're going to do our recap. We've asked Charlie to put together his list of the 10 most significant moments from this incredible trial, but there were so many unforgettable moments that Brittany and I are going to recognize a bunch of the honorable mentions, many of which would probably be at the top of other people's lists. We will do our honorable mentions on this episode, and then we will run down Charlie's top 10 list on the next episode. But before we start all of that, Charlie, we'd love it if you would offer your thoughts and observations about the very end of the trial and what you witnessed in the courtroom and the courthouse right around the announcement of the verdict.
6: Unfortunately, Bob was not in the courtroom for the verdict. He was in isolation, having had contact with someone that tested positive for the virus. But one of the most telling moments came just before the end of the trial. John Lewin got up to deliver his rebuttal, and he wanted to break the ice. So he told a story about how he's often the heaviest guy in the courtroom, and that his downfall is his love of Randy's Donuts
1: as many of you probably maybe all of you have noticed um i am not the thinnest guy in the world i tend to be whatever prosecution team i'm on i'm usually the heaviest in this case i got to be the oldest and the heaviest and for many years 25 years that's been my enemy before it was famous before anybody knew what randy's donuts was 26 years ago i worked in this courthouse i worked across the street and i used to drive on my way to work, and I'd have to get off on Manchester. And I would play a little game with myself. I would say, "Okay, if the light is red at Manchester, God wants me to have a donut. But yeah, the problem with that is sometimes the light wasn't red. So I found out that actually it's such a long straightaway coming off the freeway that you could see it. And I would literally drive. 15 miles an hour if I had to, so that when I pulled up, oh, it's red. Uh, God must really want me to have this donut. Um, um, It's so hard to pass it up, and it's really, really, really difficult. And I always thought that that was kind of the toughest thing that I would have to do. And then I became a trial lawyer, and then I started doing long cases, and I realized that as hard as it is to pass up that donut, The hardest thing in the world is when the defense is giving their clothes an argument and I just have to sit there. You want to get up and you want to scream.
6: So this produced a lot of laughter, not only from the jury, but from the gallery. And then he launched into the presentation. But the coup de grace came the next morning when we're all standing outside the courtroom waiting for the session to begin. The jurors, as it was their custom, had gathered at the elevator bank. And one of the jurors came strutting into the courthouse with the box of Randy's donuts. And I almost fell over. I thought it was the funniest thing. They went inside. They didn't offer donuts to anyone else, only fellow jurors. And uh, Lewin spotted the box. Let me make my recommendations. I love the bear claw, the cinnamon roll, and the cream donuts.
4: Yeah, I mean, I was amazed when you told me that, Charlie. I think there's one other thing that bears some mentioning. The four person of the jury, juror number 12, we described at the very beginning of the trial in an article that we did for crimestory.com as a woman doctor in her 30s who works as a pathologist. She described herself as, quote, patient, and she said she, quote, interprets results very carefully, end quote. Like some other jurors, she stated on her questionnaire that defendants should not hide behind the Fifth Amendment and said if you're being accused of something, wouldn't you want to say something about it? After an exchange with Chip Lewis, she revised her opinion on a defendant's right to remain silent. I think when we found out it was juror number 12, it was very telling to us because this is a woman as a pathologist who would have understood what it meant for Kathy to go through rotations, what it would have meant to call into her rotation if she wasn't going to be there, particularly on the first day, how absurd it would have sounded for her to call the dean of the college to report the absence. And on top of all that, she would have understood the absurdity of her going into drug rehab while going through rotations and also doing that rehab at a hospital, which she had placed as number one on her list of hospitals where she wanted to do her residency. The idea that that woman was the foreperson of this jury really put the writing on the wall for me. So as Charlie gets updates We'll revisit the aftermath of the trial and where Robert Durst goes from here. But I want to spend the bulk of this session talking about the most significant moments of the trial. So now, Brittany and I are going to offer our honorable mentions, and then on the next episode, Charlie will be back with his top 10. So, in no particular order, I've just mentioned the Lennox Hill moment when John Lewin told the jury... That this hospital where Kathy Durst had, according to Robert Durst, signed up for drug rehab during her rotations for medical school, was actually the top choice for her residency. That was a stunning moment. Are you aware,
1: Mr. Durst, that when medical students graduate from medical school, they rank the programs and the locations where they want to go? So a person might say, I want to do orthopedics at... Um, Harbor UCLA. And they put that, that's my number one choice. They rank that number one. And then the institutions, Harbor UCLA, is going to rank the medical students. And then what happens is it goes through a match and people get assigned their residencies. You're aware of this, correct?
2: Only what I've learned here when the doctors testify.
1: Are you aware that your wife? was already making plans to go through the match. Were you aware of that?
2: I think she was planning on not going through the match. Hmm.
1: Well, are you aware? Have you gone through the medical records in this case from Einstein that your attorneys have stipulated to? Have you gone through them? No. Do you know which program in the whole world of medicine that she listed as her number one choice of where she wanted to match? Any guesses? No. If I were to ask you to pick, given everything you know, the last place that she would put to match as a resident, what place would it be? I
2: have no idea.
1: Can we put it up, please? Mm -hmm. Rank order, number one, Mr. Durst. Lenox Hill Hospital.
2: She was already there.
1: Yes, as a drug addict patient?
5: I mean, it's incredible to me that you were able to do a little research and find out that they weren't even offering rehab at the time, and somehow that never came up in the trial. I thought that was pretty incredible.
4: Brittany, what's one of your honorable mentions?
5: For me, toward the top of my honorable mention list would have to be the moment when John Lewin offered to change Robert Durst's catheter bag. In
1: case there is some issue later, which I doubt there would be, I noticed that Mr. Durst's bag was um, somewhat full. So I spoke to defense counsel about it. I yeah. told them it needed to be changed. Uh, I volunteered. I said I would do it. They told me that they uh, they didn't want to do it. They said if I wanted to do it, they appreciated it. I went back with, with uh, the bailiff, and I changed his bag for him. I want, certainly, it's unorthodox, and it's unusual but I just want to make sure. Look, Who knows how this comes up at a later point, but Mr. Durst agreed. Uh, we went back. The bailiff was with us, so I said to him, you know, I just wanted to try to help you. I'm more than happy to do it. Do you want me to change it? He said, thank you. I changed it. Just want to make sure that's on the record in case at some later point in time there is some allegation of
7: whatever might come up. Oh, Mr. Lewin, I think uh, I think you, you mentioned before you had experience with this. Thank you for uh, for, for lending, uh, lending a hand and No problem. I I have a question. Yeah. Did you wash your hands? I (laughs) (laughs) did. Wait, I'm telling you. Okay. Somebody need to do it. Those good old high school days.
4: Thank you.
5: You know, some people posited that he was displaying it in a way to really play up some health issues that he was having in order to elicit sympathy, or this is when they were still filing for a mistrial because of his health. And as we've talked about, I do not get the impression that he was concerned about his health. He's out there swinging this catheter bag around like it's a Versace. He does not seem to be worried the effect that that's going to have on his kidneys.
4: Well, if Versace comes out with a line of catheter bags, we'll certainly know where they got the idea. Let's not forget the Thomas Durst testimony, where this very mild and meek and quiet individual is up on the stand telling the jury about how reticent he was to come both because of his fear of his brother and because of the pandemic. This is way back before the pandemic hiatus. And then in a moment of abject anger and woundedness, he tells a story of how cruel his brother could be.
3: I tried to deal with my father for breakfast and Bob joined us. Breakfast ends and we walk uh, towards the Durst organization I'm not going to go there, but I'm going to walk with them to the Durk organization. And Bob must have noticed, my father liked to walk through office buildings, uh, even ones he didn't own, although he owned a lot. And so we come to these revolving doors. And I don't know how revolving doors work. It never occurred to me that there was something special about revolving doors. But evidently, each door section has a break and it's, it's a rubber or cloth whoa, thing that rubs against the glass and slows the progress. So Seymour goes through the revolving door first, then I go into the revolving door and from behind, like a sneak, he takes his full strength and you can't think of him this way. He was strong in those days. He took his full strength and he showed the glass and I went around and around, and I fell out. Oh, my God. I fell out on the street, on my knees. And he's guffawing. It's the funniest thing he's ever seen in his entire life. An elderly gentleman had gotten into the, ele- into the revolving door before me, I mean after me. And he also ended up on the floor, but he was on the floor inside the building. And he's shouting, Idiots! Idiots! Like I had something to do with this. Bob is buffalling, Seymour is his usual self, walking away. Who are these people? I don't know them. And I'm, you know, I, I'm listening to my brother laughing. He's just holding his gut. It is so funny.
4: That was an incredible moment. So Brittany, what's another honorable mention on your list?
3: Yeah.
5: Of all of the things I might have imagined Robert Durst saying on the stand, I would never in a million years imagine that he would say, Jarecki made me say it. With any of those really incriminating statements implying that Andrew Jarecki had scripted them or encouraged him to make things up to sound more interesting. In that
1: clip, you were admitting, Mr. Durst, that the reason that you sent the cadaver note is that you wanted Susan's body recovered, Correct. Correct. But Mr. Durst, you are disputing the idea that the first statement that you made, that it was a note that only the killer could have written, you're admitting that you said that, but you're now saying that isn't true, is that correct?
2: I'm saying I made that statement because Andrew Jurecki asked me to make that statement.
5: You know, it flew in the face of him, on the one hand, saying, I wanted to do the jinx because I wanted to get my story out there. But he's also implying that he's not telling his story. He's telling a more sensational story to get the audience on his side.
2: Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness.
4: And then let's not forget Dick DeGarren and David Chesnoff absurdly reenacting, including getting down on the floor, the struggle between Morris Black and Bob Durst in Galveston that, according to Durst, culminated in Morris Black getting shot in the face.
1: Potentially, if Mr. Chesnoff wants to serve as Mr. Durst and Mr. Durst is directing Mr. Chesnoff, that at least we have my concern is just that the record um we've got bob sitting down it's it's problematic i don't know the record is
7: important but the jurors the jurors the jurors the jurors view is more important than the record I, the record is also important but these are the decision makers here so keep that in mind yes let's let have to talk to my agent right okay all right, so we'll slow down here, and so in this, uh, in this version, Mr. Chesnoff has, is standing up, he's uh, holding the firearm with his right hand, I can't see where it, if his finger is near the trigger. My finger is on the trigger. Finger on the trigger, and Mr. Uh, Mr. DeGuerin has placed his left arm on the back of Mr. Chesnoff's shoulder, he's grasping the firearm. A little bit different from the way mr durst described it here he's got the thumb over the the uh barrel the and then his hand is over the, the, the his four fingers of his right hand are over the front of the firearm the thumb is over the top of the firearm in this example that's right you know the only
1: issue we've got is is it's an interesting demonstration but mr durst isn't involved in
7: no, we're yeah. going to ask Mr. Durst if that that looks right or not. Oh, okay. Does this Let's look go. right, Bob?
2: That looks right to me. All right,
7: and then you wrestled and fell backwards.
1: Can, can we have Mr. Durst describe, rather than having counsel beat him through? We would like Mr. Durst to describe what happened, and then counsel can act it out. But we don't—it's leading if they're saying it and he's saying yes. Well,
7: I'm going to allow some leading here. Uh, Mr. Chesnoff uh, was was. Uh, I was falling. Falling backwards. I might not get up
1: though. <laughs> <laughs> you need to look
2: toward me. Okay. okay. And we, so what happens next? The gun went off. What? The
1: Fall.
3: gun went off. Said where where were you and where was Morris Black when the gun went off?
2: Flying on the floor of the kitchen. So you
7: fell backwards? Yeah.
3: <laughs>
7: Mr. Chesnoff has done his best Hollywood calling back, <laughs> like still grasping the gun, finger on the trigger. Ago, I, and I could get down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh, we'll stipulate
7: that Mr. De Guerin, uh, got got down with him. The <laughs> then he won't actually have to do it.
3: Like,
7: where's the
3: television
7: camera for? Uh, this is my favorite part of the whole trial so far.
5: Right. And of course, doing it in a way that was different than both Robert Durst had done it when he play acted with Dick Degeron and different from the animation. You know, I think any time we heard from women in Robert Durst's life that he had allegedly dated. That was pretty shocking. But my favorite of his girlfriends, of course, are the two different bank tellers in Galveston, Texas, who absolutely exist.
1: Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that Morris Black was the one person in Galveston who could connect your name, Robert Durst, with where you were living at the apartment?
2: I would disagree with that. Who else? Two bankers who I dated. Who were they? Two tellers from Bank of America who I, quote unquote, dated.
1: Who you dated? Did you say dated, D-A-T-
2: Dated, dated, yeah, went to dinner.
1: Two different tellers?
2: Two different tellers.
1: Wait, was this a date with the two tellers and you, or is this separate dates?
2: Well, these were two separate dates with two separate tellers at two different restaurants.
1: Who were these tellers?
2: Who were they? Were they their names? Yeah, what are their names? One was Jessica something or other, and the other was Barbara Noose.
1: And have you ever mentioned either of these women?
2: Well, this has never come up.
1: So... It's your testimony that these women knew who you were and where you were living.
2: You knew my name and knew where I was living. We went to my apartment.
1: When you took when they went to your apartment, were they dating Dorothy Signer or were they dating Bob Durst?
2: They were dating Bob Durst.
1: And when did this occur? When was this?
2: I'm thinking about it.
1: Are you thinking about it or are you making it up?
2: I am thinking
1: about it. Okay, go ahead. We'll wait.
2: So this would have been in March or April of 2000, no, of 2001.
1: And if we go to March and April in 2001, will it mention in the BD story how these were two people who could connect you and your name to Galveston?
2: Oh, they were tellers. I met them when I drew money from my Bank of America account.
1: Well, they were more than tellers. You were apparently dating them and having them over, correct?
2: I don't know what you mean. They were more than tellers. They were tellers. That's what their job was.
1: So, Mr. Durst, would you agree a teller is somebody that you go to the bank and deal with, correct? Correct. A date is someone you go out with, correct?
2: Correct.
1: If there is a teller that you also take on a date, would you agree they would be more than just a teller?
2: I would have the faintest idea what you're saying.
1: What I'm saying, Mr. Durst, is that these are not just people you're running into in the bank. You're saying you're dating these women, correct?
2: Yes, I took two, went to dinner once with each of two women.
1: And I'm asking you, are these women noted in the BD story?
2: I have no idea.
1: Do you want me to run through the BD story? Mr. Or are you going to agree that their names do not show up in the BD I don't
2: care what you do.
1: So I'm going to ask you, because it's up to you. We can spend the time flipping through the whole BD story, or you can agree that their names are not in the BD story. Which is it?
2: You're supposed to be prosecuting me. I'm not supposed to prosecute myself. And I will repeat again when I said, I don't care what you do.
4: I just can't let it go without mentioning Danny Cunningham, the Kaiser Soze <laughs> of Robert Durst's
1: Los Angeles trial. You bought a pound of marijuana from your old friend from college days, correct? Correct. You, you know, I noticed, Mr. Durst, when you were testifying, you didn't give a name. Why didn't you give the guy's name? Why did you just call him an old friend from college?
2: want well, I don't want to get him in trouble.
1: You're concerned that in 2021, he's going to get in trouble for a pound of weed that he sold 21 years ago. Is that your testimony?
2: My testimony is I did not use his name because I did not want him to get in
1: trouble. Well, here, you don't have a choice. What's his name?
2: Danny Cunningham.
1: Danny Cunningham. I assume his name is Daniel Cunningham?
2: I knew him as Danny Cunningham. And you knew him from
1: college. That means you went to school with him at Lehigh?
2: Each of these things that you bring up has to do with me abbreviating something or speaking loosely. I did not know him from my college days. I knew him from my graduate school days when we were both at UCLA, a Ph.D. program for economics.
1: Tell me about Daniel Cunningham. What do you know about him? Do I know about him? Yes. Tell me everything you know about Daniel Cunningham.
2: That will take quite a while. Oh, I'll wait. Okay. So Daniel Cunningham dropped out of the PhD program at about the same time that I did. And he moved to Garbersville and he bought land contiguous with the redwood forest.
1: Mr. Durst, this morning, Mm -hmm. I showed you a handwriting report. Do you recall that? Yes. And you agree you had a chance. You looked at that handwriting report, correct?
2: I had a chance, yes.
1: And I put the, was Mr. Henderson briefly put it up on the screen. Do you recall that? No. After you ended up looking at the handwriting report, I was examining you regarding your friend who you bought the marijuana from. And what name did you say? What was his name?
2: Danny Cunningham.
1: Mr. Durst, are you aware of what the name of the handwriting expert on the report that I gave you was? No. Lloyd Cunningham.
2: Maybe of them are related.
1: Is it possible, Mr. Durst, or is, in fact, what happened, that similar to the movie Usual Suspects, you looked at this report, you saw the name Cunningham, and that's the name you decided to give when you were naming your marijuana dealer. Isn't that that what happened?
2: that is not possible.
1: So it's a coincidence that you came up with that name, even though we showed you before that it says Lloyd Cunningham on the report?
2: I assume it is a coincidence, but for all I know, they're related.
4: And just three more honorable mentions before we get to Charlie's list.
5: First, there was the moment when Bob accidentally blurted out that he buried Kathy during cross-examination.
1: All right, Mr. Durst, it's your sworn testimony that you have no idea what happened to Kathy, correct? Correct. And you've also testified that you are unaware of any crime scene correct i agree you don't know if she drowned somewhere correct correct so mr durst if you have no idea what happened to kathy and where she is can you please explain why you said this this morning please play a you are now saying that the point of that was you're trying to get a plea deal correct and a plea deal the point of a plea deal is is that in the end in order for your plea deal to come to go through you have to give us what you're offering on your end and we have to give you what you're requesting on our end is that correct
2: I never said I
1: knew what happened to Soldier. I never said I knew where Kathy was buried. Stop. Mr. Durst, why did you say you never said you knew where Kathy was buried? How do you know Kathy's buried at all?
2: Same like a logical
1: Well, Mr. Durst, would you agree that you talking about the fact that Kathy was buried would seem, Mr. Durst, to be implying. That you know, in fact, that she was buried, correct?
2: I was telling you what I thought you wanted to hear.
1: Wait, you're not saying you were trying to get a plea deal this morning while we were in court, are you?
2: That's this morning. So when I said buried, I misspoke.
1: When you say you misspoke, Mr. Durst, was I talking about where Kathy was buried?
2: You were talking about a hypothetical if she was dead.
1: Did I mention her being buried at all? Who's the only person that mentioned her being buried? Second,
4: there were the many moments where Bob acknowledged that if he had killed Kathy, Susan, or Morris, he would lie about it. There were, of course, many such moments over the course of the trial. We're just going to pick one to illustrate the point.
1: Mr. Durst, this is my last question. As you sit here right now, I'm going to ask you, did you kill Susan Berman? But if you had, you would lie about it, correct?
2: Correct.
1: Nothing further.
2: And
5: third, when Bob flirted with the idea of confessing to killing Kathy and implicating his brother Douglas in the cover up.
2: Um, anyway, so Lisa DePaulo says she moved into the East Heroes. I saw that. He like a maid. And I just with opinions about whether or not Douglas helped me dispose of the body.
7: I understand.
2: I love it.
3: Yeah. I mean, the only thing I think, though, is that Douglas may be behind Lisa Apollo.
2: Oh, then it's Shedene Pirro who must think that Douglas is... Uh... Oh, yes. I, can't, I Yes, she thinks that Douglas helped you. Right, right. i might decide to, um, uh, how things go to confirm what
4: it So, we're going to leave it there for today. Come back for the next episode as we count down Charlie Bagley's top ten list of the Durst trial's most significant moments. That's coming up on Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?
5: Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of season two of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from season one. And head over to crimestory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was co-produced and edited by Alexis Nodobartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.